0: Welcome to CDS Insight Podcast, presented by LSCSU China Development Society, featuring vibrant intellectual conversations among students, professionals, and entrepreneurs. So now moving on to the more maybe technical questions about those legislations and uh, this area of law. Ali on, he talks about the, the difficulty of established causation for those Um, legislators and legislations to be put in place so is that a main is that the main reason for the the first wave of private climate litigations which is I'd say from 2005 to 2015 just from individuals against those corporates have failed or the other other reasons
1: Uh okay so we're going now we're talking about climate change litigation right so uh, which has been Really, an area where there's been kind of an explosion of activity these past five years, and also an explosion of interests. And I think it's also one of the one of the areas of climate change law that is um, most fascinating and most accessible to uh, a broader audience. Um, so particularly what we've seen in the past few years, uh, and you kind of allude to that when you talk about a first wave of litigation, which suggests there's also a second wave. And well, arguably, we're even now kind of moving into a third wave. Um, what we've seen happening recently is to, you know, not inconsiderable surprise in some quarters. Um, there have been quite a few successes in terms of claimants that were campaigning for um more climate change mitigation or for reparation in the courts and that were successful in their claims um, so we've we've seen kind of uh, court decisions in which the court basically decide uh, in which the court affirmed yes, the situation and what is happening now, either what a government is doing or what a particular private company is doing is incompatible with. Um, you know, our, our continued life and well-being in, in a kind of sustainable environment. And that is a legal problem, and we have to do something about that. That's happened in the, in the famous Dutch Urgenda case. Um, it happened also in Pakistan, in the Ligari case. Um, very recently, there was actually, there's also, there's a German constitutional court decision uh, in which um, it was found that the recent um the recent german environmental legislation which uh, basically um, pushed back the greatest the the the, the most intense reduction in um, greenhouse gas emission redu- uh, in greenhouse gas emissions uh to the 2030 to 2050 period so you know this so basically um the reductions became uh, the way that the, the the law was designed. The reductions became more and more intense, you know, so harder and harder to meet as time went on. Now the German Constitutional Court has struck this down because they say, well, this actually this infringes uh the you know this infringes equality this infringes the kind of the, the, the right of the young to be in a kind of similar position to the older generations because it shoves the burden too much towards the younger generation so that's an example then also um there's been a recent case in um, in France uh, where Shell has actually been held accountable for emitting too much in order to cut down its GHG uh, emissions. So that's kind of the first time where a private company has been told that it should really change its ways uh, by a court. So those are all very exciting developments. And they're indeed, they're markedly different to the developments that we saw in the early 2000s and up to about 2015, where you had a kind of good little trickle of these kind of attempts of suing either uh, uh, public authorities or private companies for the impacts of climate change and these attempts being unsuccessful. Uh, And um, there are a number of factors that explain why they were unsuccessful at the time and why these kind of these same kind of cases might have a better chance of succeeding now. One thing to be aware of in this context is that most of these initial cases of climate change litigation uh, took place in the U.S. And the U.S. On the one hand, you can understand because the U.S. is quite a litigious society; it's uh, it's a jurisdiction where um, there's there have been a number of notable successes in basically the courts being engines for social change, for example, in the context of successful tobacco litigation. Um, But on the other hand, it's also quite a challenging jurisdiction to launch climate change uh, claims because of a number of doctrines there, uh, such as the political question doctrine, the preemption doctrine, both of which I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but basically they make it much harder to um, hold private parties accountable for the kind of harm that has a really kind of public general impact. So, uh, and that's specific to the US context, and that's still there. And it will, I think, continue to make it hard for these kind of cases to be successful in the US. But then you also mentioned, well, uh, causation. Absolutely. That was another big thing that we, uh, that even if the courts would roundly acknowledge that climate change was happening, even if the court was um, uh, convinced that climate change was man made, um, and that impacts such as uh, the village of Kivalina uh, pretty much flooding and and disappearing off the face of the earth, basically, uh, that those were the consequences of climate change. Even if it was convinced of all that, there is still this expectation uh, in tort cases, in liability cases, that you show that the harm has been caused by the particular person that you have dragged before the court. And that was very, very difficult because of this diffuse element, because of this notion of, well, it's it's all our joint, shared emissions that are causing the problem, not one particular polluter. And that that was a, a major, major obstacle. Now, on that particular score, on causation, there we have seen a bit of movement, uh, some shifts. Um partly helped along by a, a very influential study that was released in 2014 uh, on what, are, what, have been, what have become known as the carbon majors, where basically um, I think about 90 large companies were identified uh, as being responsible for 70% uh, of greenhouse gas emissions across time, basically. And so then you're no longer talking about such a diffuse problem caused by billions and billions of different people gradually, you know, emitting their own share of CO2 and a tiny bit of methane into the atmosphere. You're talking about more identifiable uh, entities where there's a growing realization that while we're all responsible, but some are really far more responsible than others, and so there's also a stronger, a stronger body of what is called attribution science now, the kind of science that can make a connection between climate change and particular physical impacts, floods, hurricanes, etc. And so these kinds of developments have made the, the act of holding particular entities accountable for the consequences of climate change, much more plausible and much more legally realistic than they were in the first place. Added to that finally is also, I think, generally a changing context. Um, a great many other countries uh, um, these days have uh, recognized environmental rights in very often in a constitution. That sort of also changes Changes the kind of the, the framing of these issues significantly, especially when it's litigation vis-a-vis public authorities, um, and I think also for the judiciary. Um, and this is, I have to say, this is this is somewhat speculative because it's not as if I have talked to um, you know masses of, of members of the judiciary to arrive at that conclusion. But I, I have the sense that the stakes are also changing. Um, It's when you're kind of like, when you're a a judge, that kind of like taking what would be a very innovative decision is a very challenging thing. And I think there's quite a strong bias towards applying, interpreting the law and applying it in in the way that your predecessors have. And the, the risks would have been seen mostly as the risks that a particular judgment would be seen as unsound or that you would be overruled uh, at appeal or at at kind of at a higher level basically but I think there's a stronger awareness now also among the judiciary that those are not the only risks there are countervailing risks as well there are serious risks of the judiciary falling short in legal imagination falling short in actually kind of comprehending the seriousness of the situation just at the time where it could have made a difference. I think there's that stronger awareness too as well, which balances things out a bit more. Now, we have seen success stories. That doesn't mean that uh, from now on, new kind of climate change claims are gonna be a shoe-in, There are going to be gains and losses, uh, but it's definitely, a really interesting development. And hopefully it might spur both private actors if they're getting, or if they feel that they might be at risk of getting sued and public authorities to be more proactive in doing more and developing more climate change policies, being more ambitious in their targets. And you could get a really sort of like virtuous circle there of, litigation and um, legislation ideally spurring each other on and getting us towards this point where we can really deliver on hopefully 1.5 degrees rather than overshoot it
0: yes i think problems in climate change litigations have to be tackled through joint effort from lots of parties so now moving on to the next question that law has been traditionally considered as a territorial concept. Each country has their own law. Mm -hmm. And however, many environmental regulations in the recent years can be called transnational, such as the Paris Agreement. So what are the main challenges caused by
1: those transnational regulations to law? Absolutely, you know, of course, climate change is a global problem. And um, the uh, inhabitants of um, uh, Vanuatu are just as much th- uh, threatened by emissions from Chile as they are by emissions from Luxembourg. So there's a kind of there's there's definitely a, a need there to have at least some sort of global overarching um, legal response uh, in that, then also kind of fuels on and supports national responses. So yes, very much a transnational framework that we're talking about here. And as you mentioned, yes, that does kind of pose a number of challenges for uh, for law. Um, well, Let's start with kind of this simplest, most straightforward case. Let's look for example, let's say, if you have obligations in the Paris Agreement, obligations that states have to do particular things, and you compare that to obligations in national law that say regulatory authorities, environment uh, environment authorities have to do particular things. What if they don't do them? What if they don't meet their obligations? Now in national law, you typically do have recourse against that. You have recourse against, say, regulatory agencies, for example, not fulfilling their mandate. There are various options you have there. You have political options. You may also have legal options. There may be the option of judicial review. Uh, There is an arsenal of responses there. At the international level, if, say, a state doesn't do what it's supposed to do, according to the paris agreement your options are far more limited there are there are some sort of soft mechanisms in place but effectively at the international law level it's much it's very hard to compel states to do what they don't want to do and especially not if we're talking about sort of reasonably powerful states then you know it's it's really hard there are just very few tools you have So that already kind of illustrates one kind of main difference and one main challenge of the transnational and international character of um, a lot of climate change law, that the the connection to um, enforceability mechanisms is a lot weaker, is uh, a lot less direct than it is at the national level. And that's just, that's the first kind of level of complications. But then, You mentioned the term transnational rather than international, and it's absolutely the case that indeed uh, there's also a lot of, um, there are a lot of climate change governance structures, a lot of regimes that are actually not sort of international properties, properly speaking, but that are more informal, like for example, uh, OECD measures or, or, or OECD recommendations or the UN Global Compact, for example. Now, um, now, if a company says that it follows the UN Global Compact uh, recommendations, what's kind of, well, what's the legal significance of this? What if it does or doesn't do it? What kind of entity has any authority to check whether the company indeed complies with the UN Global Compact compact Standards as it says it does? What's the legal status of that entity? Um, And if there's a dispute between whichever company is or whichever entity is checking compliance and a company that says I'm complying. Well, under what kind of legal regime does that dispute resort? What kind of legal rules and standards are applied in order to resolve that dispute? There's a, those, are all, those become very challenging, very tricky questions. So there's a kind of dual pressure on law here, a dual challenge to law in that, first of all, the legal quality, the legal significance of the norms that these kind of governance regimes produce is not straightforward, can be open to question. To what extent, for example, can, you, can courts refer and rely on these standards as yardsticks to measure the behavior of particular uh, claimants or, or defendants? So the legal quality of The norms they produce is open to question and also the legal regime under which these arrangements themselves resort is also open to question and what if you have say a clash between two different transnational norms or between a transnational norm and an international standard how do you resolve that conflict if you have a clash between two national norms, between two national legal provisions, there are a number of conventions that allow you to resolve that clash. For example, typically, the more recent standard will uh, trump over the older standard. Or if it's something is, uh, if if you have one provision in a, a decree and another provision in a constitution and they clash, it's the constitution, it's the higher norm that will trump over the lower norm. But in the tra- once you kind of leave the safe borders of, of national of domestic law in the transnational sphere, you don't always have these clear kind of conventions and you don't always have a clear hierarchy between the different norms and the different regimes so all these kind of situations create um p- put pressure on law and create kind of new legal problems that uh, a range of different uh, very uh, exciting scholars uh, are grappling with um this day and age
0: that's very great to learn. there are so many wide ranges of problems and pressures and regulations and laws to tackle this global issue and now moving on to our last question i think we'll focus more on the uk so many legislations i have mentioned above are eu legislations but yes. since the uk has left the eu will these legislations keep on having an impact in the uk
1: if so, how? Yes. Okay. Again, this is a really a really good question. Um, so yes, UK not a member of uh, the EU anymore. Um, however, the vast majority of UK environmental law, um, including a lot of UK climate change uh, measures, stemmed from EU law. Um, I think. Well. Numbers are not the most meaningful in this context, but I, the, the, the number that you hear often is that about 80% of UK environmental law actually had, had uh, EU roots. Now, what happens to all this now? Well, that was fortunately, that was foreseen, that was arranged in um, the um, UK Withdrawal Act, withdrawal from the European Union. So. While the U.K. was a member of the EU, then um, either, if it were, either EU measures had to be transposed into national law, if it was the case, for example, of EU. directives typically, or they just had to kind of become part of national law as they were, as they were, like EU regulations. Now, that process recognizing that as sort of a valid legal process that was provided for in the European Communities Act. The Withdrawal Act repealed the European Communities Act, which basically meant that it took away the legal basis for a whole host of um, UK and uh, European laws but at the same time, it immediately replaced it with an alternative legal basis in the Withdrawal Act itself that basically sort of fished up all these measures and said, okay, they are still, they're still legal, they still continue. So for the time being, uh, until uh, basically the, the UK legislature changes a lot of these measures, we're carrying over a lot of this EU law and it's effectively now, U.K. national law. The difference is of course that for the future, the U.K. can change a number of these provisions um, or, and doesn't have to follow any more um, the impending changes or the reforms or amendments that are being proposed um, in, the, uh, in the EU. So for the time being, there's still quite a lot of similarity. Uh, there There are also a number of um, measures where the UK couldn't just sort of like um, you know basically take the same set of, of provisions and and put a, put a union jack on it that where it didn't work that way. For example, for the emissions trading system. Um, it's no longer a part of the EU emissions trading market. So it had to develop its own regime. That has happened now. And if you look at the new UK emissions trading system, it's very similar and it borrows a lot of the same dynamics from the EU ETS. So there may kind of, for, for the foreseeable future, I think there will still be quite a lot of overlap and similarity. Over time, however, it is quite likely that, uh, unless there's a major shift uh, in policy, that the systems will start diverging uh, increasingly. Um, For example, the European Union, and you've mentioned this a few times, is at the moment is developing this, what is called Fit for 55 uh, package in order to achieve 55% emission reduction uh, targets by 2030, and that uh, entails quite a bit of uh, amendment and legal reform. The UK is not going to follow that legal reform anymore, so that will create uh, a degree of deviation. Um, And in addition to that, it's also, I don't think uh, it's a particular secret that uh, the the current government, at least in, in the UK, um, tries to rely as much as possible on kind of voluntary initiatives, on leveraging private initiative, et cetera, towards environmental achievement, rather than kind of uh, putting down overarching uh, targets and standards and really kind of um, imposing mandatory restrictions. Uh, so I think we are going to see over time a difference in in style uh, emerging, um, which, well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm not quite sure how how great that's going to be for the environment in the UK, but it will definitely be interesting, kind of, to start studying these different and these diverging approaches to environmental protection on the continent versus in the UK. Now, a final wrinkle here is that, of course, um, while the UK no longer has to follow any kind of legal change that is happening in the EU on the front of uh, environmental protection. Um, and while it is also free to amend the legislation that is enforced and that is still overwhelmingly based on the EU um, legislation at the moment, um, there's, also the, uh, there's also what is called like the indirect effect of EU law, uh, often referred to also as the Brussels effect and the the term that's been coined by a scholar called Anu Bradford. And basically what this means is that, well, uh, the UK may, for example, over time, uh, develop its own um, product standards, its its own environmental product standards in deviation from those of uh, the EU, for example, the EU is going to tighten emission standards, significantly tighten emission standards for uh, for cars in the coming years. Um, Now, the UK might decide not to do that or might decide to go the other way. But if say the Nissan plant in the UK still wants to manufacture cars for the EU and still wants to export to the EU, they will have to follow those EU standards still. So that's kind of what is called like the indirect effect of certain EU regulations. And they're particularly uh, relevant for environmental product regulations. Ultimately, at the end of the day, um, like it or lump it, these are um, two jurisdictions that are geographically close and that are very tightly entangled. Um, There is... There are certainly degrees of separation that are possible, and I think we are going to see uh, that emerge, but completely and fully independent of uh, of each other, I don't think they'll ever be.
0: Well, it's great to learn that Brexit is not going to affect the UK's progress in its environmental legislations massively.
1: Well, I'm not sure if I said that, not in the short term. Well, no, in the short short term, term, exactly. I do think that there is, well, and of course, it also will depend significantly on, first of all, at the moment, the UK is is, uh, actually, um, the the, the Parliament is talking about the Environment Bill, which is being put through uh, Parliament, which may become enacted uh, in in the future. Um, So there is going to be, it depends, of course, a lot on, Um, the extent to which successive governments in the UK will actually be willing to to invest in this and also be willing to um, not only talk the talk, but also walk the walk and back up their aspirations and their promises of a green economy with uh, clear and ambitious and proactive legislation and with proper funding. We'll have to see.
0: Yes, we'll certainly have to see and we'll hope that they will follow their mm-hmm. ancestors <laughs> to keep on following with um, the climate change um, legislations. Well, so this is the end of today's episode. So thank you very much for taking your time with us and it's good to learn from you, your insights today and we really appreciate your presence, Professor Haybert. It was a pleasure, Deborah.
1: <laughs> thank you very much yes thank you to all the listeners and uh, you know i hope uh you it, it has stimulated your interest in the field and you know i'm around you know happy to have follow-up discussions when you like yeah thank you for that
0: Thank you for listening to the Inside Podcast. To learn more about China
1: Development Society, follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook and WeChat.